This morning, I want to talk to each of you about something that is a real hot button for some. I want, us to, I want to talk to you about racial injustice. I want to talk to you about how to have a conversation that doesn't get derailed. I'm finding that that is happening quite frequently in our day right now. With the advent of the death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer, on almost nine minutes, that police officer had his knee on his neck, and George Floyd eventually died. Police brutality. I want to ask you, how are you doing in conversing and talking with other people about this issue? <clears throat> Excuse me. We have issues on the table that, quite honestly, I'm not sure that everybody wants to talk about. But before we start into this discussion, I want to share a story with you. And it might seem a little unrelated, so just bear with me. It's a discussion between a husband and a wife. The wife She says that she's been offended by her husband because he went to the store to get some ice cream that he likes and that she wasn't even consulted. And she says, that was so selfish on your part to go to the store, get ice cream for yourself and not even think about me. Some of you men are thinking, been there, done that. And he says, you think I'm selfish? Well, just last week, you got a movie, and you didn't even ask me if I even wanted to see it. And she says, well, maybe if you weren't so buried in your video games at the time, I might have. And he says, well, you were the one who got me those video games for my birthday. And she says, and you know what you got me? A $5 pair of bunny slippers. Cheap. You're just selfish and lazy. Well, the husband comes back and he says, well, you're twice that. Thinking, of course, he just now won the argument. Wrong. I could continue with this argument between the husband and wife, but some of you have lunch right after this, and I wouldn't want to spoil it any more than I already have. So I want to ask you a question. Where's this discussion going? It's not going too well. Can I ask you, do you even remember what the discussion was originally about? If you think you can remember, raise your hand. Okay, that's less than half of you. It was originally about ice cream. And the conversation got derailed. Or I should say, the argument. It was defensive, it was accusatory, and as truthful as some of these points were, it derailed the conversation. Now, I have been in situations where I'm doing marriage counseling, and I have let this play out. I want to see where it's going. I want to see how mom and dad, husband and wife, discuss, a.k.a. argue. I want to find out how do their conversations get derailed. I want to find out, do they even come back to the original problem and resolve it? I generally find they don't. Because stuff from the past, yes, they get very historical, comes up 
onto the, into their discussion, and they start talking about a hundred different things, and they never solve their problems. So what does this have to do with racism? In all honesty, I think that it turns into an argument filled with accusations and defensiveness. Can I just share with you perhaps some of those arguments? Some of you will get offended with how, what I'm going to say here. One person says, in response to charges of racism, well, Black Lives Matter is Marxist. So where does that leave, lead the discussion? They're simply trying to talk about racism, and now we're talking about Marxism. Now, the truth is that the founders of Black Lives Matter confess that they are Marxist. There's three ladies that started this, but many have climbed aboard this, whether you agree with this or not, and they have climbed aboard because their hearts are good and they genuinely want to see racism in America end. Right now, that's where the discussion is. And if we don't understand the problem, how are we going to be able to offer any real solutions? So many have climbed aboard this. I am concerned, as some are, about where they are wanting to take this when they start talking about problem solving. But that's another discussion. Don't let those comments derail the initial conversation that you need to have about what the problem even is. But of course, then, on the other side, we hear rioting is the voice of the unheard. Rioting is the voice of the unheard. I get that. But are we bringing it up to somehow justify rioting? Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Not more evil, not more injustice, but overcome evil with good. There is a solution to this problem, and it is not rioting or looting. And God forbid that somehow in our discussion, aka argument, that we in any way imply that the rioting is in any way okay. But the problem is deep. Listen beyond the words to the heart. Because if you get stopped, just like the husband and wife, they got attacked and the discussion immediately got derailed. They never brought it back to the original problem. Don't let your conversations get derailed. Or how about this one? They just want to completely get rid of the police force. There's truth in this. There are those from the far left. They do want to completely get rid of the police force. Most of them want to see reform. I spoke with a gentleman just uh, this past week. He is a pastor, a black pastor in the Sanford area. I've been close friends with him for years and years. He was on the police force in Denver, Colorado for 25 years, retired, came to Sanford, and he started a church. We have actually had a joint service with them some years back. Uh, I love this brother. And I decided I'm going to call him and I want to get his take on this. And he, he surprised me. He did not defend the police as much as I thought he would. And he just kind of shot straight with his answers. And he said, Mike, there is racism here. And right now, the, the, the hurts that are in the heart of the black community need to be heard without conversations being derailed. 
There were problems, though, in the police force. And he said this, I would venture to say about 2% within the police. Now, he was kind of, this was his best guess, about 2% within the police department, any given police department, are racist. They tend to use force too quickly, and they give the police force a bad name. I would not consider racism systemic, though, in the police force, but there is a serious problem that needs to be dealt with. In Minneapolis, apparently their goal, the city council has made a decision they're going to get rid of the police force. I stand in horror when I hear that, glad I don't live there. However, listen to what they're saying before you react. They are actually bringing up good points. I personally would not choose the course of action they're choosing, but listen. Are you aware that today, and policemen will tell you this, they'll freely confess it, there is more on the shoulders of a policeman or policewoman today than several decades ago. Let me ask you this. You see someone walking down the street. They're kind of staggering a little bit, talking to themselves. And you realize, you know, it's very good. They're either drunk or they've got some mental illness. What do you do? You dial 911. And a policeman shows up. A policeman with a gun in his holster who is used to help deal with law and order. And this person that called you is only afraid they're going to step out in traffic. There's a better way to deal with this because the truth is many nonviolent situations when the police are invited have escalated and someone has died. There's got to be a better way to deal with this problem. This is what Minneapolis is dealing. I'm not saying that I agree with them, but listen to what they're saying. We might come back with, you know what? Some people embrace white supremacy. I get that. We have seen marches, we have seen riots taking place by Nazi groups, and they are white supremacists. Should this happen? Absolutely not. But be careful, don't paint us all with the same brush. This goes both ways. Listen to the conversation. Be so careful not to bring up reasons why you think this or think that and derail the conversation. We need to understand, the second thing, we, first thing is we need to turn the arguments, excuse me, we need to be careful not to turn the discussion into arguments filled with accusations and defensiveness. Number two, there's really little understanding of the problem and the feelings involved. Can I ask you, when was the last time that you, as part of by you, I mean those part of the white community have actually had a sit-down conversation with someone in the black community, man or woman. And when you talked, did you get into an argument or did you try to listen to their story? Many, I'm not going to say all, but many have stories of hurt, of how they've been treated, of how their grandfathers have been treated, their mother and father have been treated, how they have been treated, how their children have been treated. And many of those circumstances are real hurts from real problems. If you don't understand their hurt, who are you 
to begin offering solutions. I want to challenge you with that. You have to first hear them, okay? Most people today, most are not saying there's no racism in our midst. On the other hand, some are even saying that little has changed. I don't agree with either of those statements. Much has changed, but it has not gone away. There is still a problem. If we're not careful, we are going to approach this discussion with arrogance. Number three, there are few apologies that are being offered. On either side, you have the Jane Elliott's far left who say all white people, including herself, are racist. On the other hand, you have some conservatives who say that nothing of these problems points to racism. And then lastly, we usually offer solutions that will only perpetuate the problem. We either turn a blind eye or we offer weak solutions like money and we think that's going to solve it. This is a deep problem. We need to have discussions with the black community. We need to hear them out. Number two, we need to understand this hurt that, it's re- that is real. Then I'm going to encourage you, study the problem yourself. Don't just click on videos about racial prejudice, okay, that say that racism is systemic in education. Are you looking at both sides of the issue? Is racism in education even systemic? Some would throw statistics out there and would conclude, absolutely. There are others who would say, I disagree. There is racism in it, but it is not systemic. Systemic means that in the very fabric of the system of education, there is racism, and we have to revamp everything within it. That is a systemic problem, and you generally have to recreate or completely overhaul. So let's be careful of labeling something systemic. But is there a problem? I'm going to tell you right now, there is. And there are some educational systems, maybe more in the past than today, and they do base much of their people coming in, matriculation on race. But is it systemic? Do your research. What are the other contributing factors? I tell you what, statistics, you can make statistics say almost anything you want. That is sad. Study it. Then talk about possible solutions. I'll be honest with you, some of the solutions we have offered since the 1960s with the civil rights movement have helped. Many of them have only served to perpetuate the problem. If you want to research economic disparity, that is, the difference between the rich and the poor, and even go further, the difference between white communities and black communities, the difference there is called economic disparity. There's a lot of people out there who have opinions on this, and they choose their statistics to prove themselves right. There is a truth in this somewhere. It may not be as bad as some say it is, but, it, but there is an issue. But to simply say the problem is racism, I think is being naive. There are many issues involved in this. I was on the phone about two weeks ago, and you have met, many of you have met Paul Benjamin. He oversees the Dream Center. He's coming out with a book next 
next month in July. And as I was talking with him, because he's worked a lot in the black community here in Sanford, he has moved to North Carolina and continuing his work there. But Paul was being very honest with me. He said, Mike, there truly is an issue with racism in America today. But can I tell you what I think is even an even bigger problem? He had my ear. Paul, what do you think is an even bigger problem than racism? And he told me this. He said, boys and girls growing up in a home where there is no dad. Now, let's be careful to simply say, ah, that's the problem. That's what the real problem is. See, you're derailing the conversation. There is racism. There is a problem, though, with boys and girls growing up without a dad in the home. Several decades ago, they did a study, and they found that black and white, somewhere between 15 and 25% of boys and girls grew up without a dad present in their home. The white community, a little bit closer to 15%. Black community, a little bit closer to 25%. Several decades later, close to our present day, they did the same study, and they discovered that <coughs> more boys and girls, percentage-wise, were growing up without dads present in the home. As the, the, the statistic was thrown out there, that in the white community, it's about 24% from about 15 In the black community, from close to 25%, it has risen to 75%. This problem is getting worse and worse. And I wouldn't doubt that much of it has to do with how we as Americans, politicians included, are trying to fix the problem. But as he was relating to me, he said, Mike, I've written a book, and I'm looking at a lot of different problems, and I really think at the heart, not the only problem, but the heart of this is fatherlessness in the home. And he is all about mentoring and getting men mentoring younger men and, and, and such, and be, to be able to have men come into other boys' lives, to be able to counsel with them, to be able to be a friend to them, to take them to baseball games, and to be that presence of some sort of man figure in his life. So he, he said, Mike, the, the solutions that we're offering today are just not working. When it comes to economic disparity, did you realize that the difference between the, the wealthy um, and the poor was narrowing until we came to the civil rights movement? And I would include also the white community and black community. It was narrowing. It was still wide. It was still an issue, regardless of what you think is the cause. But here is what the statistics are showing on both sides of the fence here that since the 1960s, nothing has changed. Of all the money that we have thrown at this problem, it has still remained a problem. Here is my point now. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is desperately wicked, beyond cure. Who can understand it? Apparently, all our politicians think they can. The truth is, we can't. 
There is someone who does understand the heart that it's desperately wicked and that is God himself. And so he said, since you guys are not going to get it, I'm going to give you a book so that you can get it. So that when you look at problems in your society, where are you going to turn to? To some politician, to some statistician. You better turn to the word of God because the word of God is what will offer the solution. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that men and women at their best can actually provide some halfway decent solutions. However, racism will never, ever be eliminated without the gospel. And let me just say this. You are going to need to do more than just start with the gospel. The gospel, the good news to that desperately wicked heart, the gospel provides us with this picture of reconciliation and redemption. And and be careful, don't misunderstand me. It's more than a picture. It is a solution of reconciliation and redemption. We don't want to look at the Bible and kind of just say, well, the Bible is all about an oppressed people being set free so they're no longer under oppression. Because where that has led us is a social gospel that says somehow the kingdom of God is all about setting the physically oppressed free. So man has an, uh, an idea that if we throw enough money at this problem, we will relieve the oppression and somehow arrive at a utopia, or at least an approximation thereof. And I'm going to tell you what, no matter how much you throw at a problem like this, you are going to miss the heart of it because the heart of it is the heart, the heart of man. It is desperately wicked. God must change the heart. And that's where we've got to start. But I I told you, you, you can't just start there because the entire solution to this real problem, though man may offer good advice and some wisdom, The heart has got to be changed. Attitudes have got to be changed. The truth is, there are too many Christians, I mean, very possibly genuine Christians that are still racist. They still adhere to the curse of Ham theology, where when Ham killed his brother, God put a mark on him, and no lie, that mark was black skin. That is something that was perpetuated in the church not the world, and that somehow alleviated the guilt of slave owners. I hope we've grown out of that. The truth is there are still people today who believe it. Let me ask you this. As a Christian, you hear about a black man marrying a white woman. What is your initial response? What is your initial emotional response? Many of them will say, wow, I don't know I feel comfortable with that. My question is, why do you not feel comfortable with that? I'm not going to provide a solution for you, but I tell you what, maybe it's because God still needs to do something in your heart. Maybe you are not seeing the beauty of God's creation. Maybe. 
So we can't just start with the gospel. The entire solution is the gospel. We've got to live according to the truth of God's word of reconciliation and redemption. It must be gospel-oriented, rooted in God's truth. <laughs> Amos 5. 524, it says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. How are you going to do that? Just with men's paltry proposals of reform. What is justice? Where are you, how are you going to even define justice apart from God's truth? Are you going to turn to Karl Marx? Who are you going to turn to? Justice is defined by the God who created justice, who is just, who is righteous. How are you going to define righteousness? When you arrive at the solution to this problem of racism, what is it even going to look like? If it disagrees with the Bible, I'm going to tell you right now it's wrong. It must, our solutions must be rooted in God's word. It must be gospel-oriented. I want you to know that Sanford has truly been blessed, What I think it's about eight years ago, right after the Trayvon Martin-George Zimmerman issue, when George Zimmerman was not arrested right away because they didn't believe there was enough evidence, the chief of police got fired. There were some problems. That particular chief of police had a good old boy system wired within the fabric of his police force, and he did tent. He was accused of showing favoritism. He knew George Zimmerman's dead, and he was charged, this is why you didn't arrest him. Regardless of where the truth falls out, there was a good old boy system in the Sanford Police Department that needed to be rooted out. <clears throat> there was a lack of community between the police and the black community especially. And this issue was not being dealt with. You see, I don't know what it's like when a police car drives by and I feel unsafe. How do you feel? Do you feel safe when you see a policeman drive through your neighborhood? Doesn't that make you feel safe? But for many blacks, it doesn't. It makes them feel unsafe. I don't understand that because I didn't grow up with that. And I need to hear more of what my black friends say that they have been through. So do you. When Sanford got their new chief of police, he was hard-nosed about this. He's a Christian man. When he gathered the pastors together, he preached to them. He told them, there are issues in our community that you blacks and whites need to get it together and come up with some solutions to help the city with. And he preached to them, but he, he rallied them. And so... He, he made some proposals. He got rid or is trying to get rid of this good old boy system that covers over indiscretions. And he is trying to help build a sense of community between the policemen and the community. Is a black or white. If you ever go to Fort Mellon, and they're having in, right next to the park, and there's a big open field, and they're doing some sort of uh, celebration or almost anything. And there's tons of vendors. You will always find 
at least one Sanford police car vehicle with their setup there. Maybe it's an appeal to kids, talking with the community. This chief of police had, their poli had his police force go door to door talking with the community. The relationship between the police and the community has gotten much better, but there are still problems they're working with, okay? And so we need to come up with some solutions, but those solutions have got to be gospel-oriented, all right? And I'm grateful for our new chief of police in Sanford. <clears throat> the culture within the police force, it does need to change. Give me one moment here. I was a little surprised. I'm trying to remember the data, but if, if it wasn't this past week, it was the week before. Um, but I read in the newspaper, and you may have seen the video, that within the, the emergency responders of the police force in Buffalo were moving forward on the street to help supervise a protest that was going on, and an elderly gentleman, kind of tall and lanky, he was white, by the way, came, 75 years of age, came up to them, and he started a discussion with them. You could see him gesturing a little bit to the right. And within seconds, a young police officer with baton in hand uh, was next to the other gentleman with both hands, pushed this gentleman back, using a decent amount of force, the gentleman tripped as he was trying to step backwards, fell to the ground, cracked his head on the ground, quite a bit of blood coming out of his head. Little scary. And the chief of police suspended those two police officers until the investigation was concluded. 57 police officers onto that emergency response team quit. They felt that the punishment was too harsh. Can I share my opinion with you right now? And you're free to disagree with me. I think I'm glad they did. There is something in the culture of that police force that has somehow rationalized saying, that's okay, or that's not too bad. See, this is the problem when we turn a blind eye to what you're really dealing with. The police force has been known to exercise too much force. And that was, that was honestly a, a simple example. I commend that police officer. When I was speaking with the, uh, th this black pastor friend of mine who had been on the police force, he said this, Mike, there was absolutely no reason for that officer to do that. Regardless of any rationalization that he's going to put out there, he should never have done that. I commend that chief of police for taking that firm action, regardless of whether the other police officers felt that it was right or wrong. There is something wrong in the culture of that police force. I'm just throwing that out there. <clears throat> I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, we see a fundamental truth that as Christians, we need to think thoroughly about. It is a simple, simple truth 
that has deep ramifications for this issue. And this is what Paul is teaching, he's preaching to the Athenians, those in Athens, and he says this, from one man, are you there with me in verse 26? He says in Acts 17, 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them that is, when they would live, what generation they would live, and the exact places, we call them countries, the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. This is the result, God-forming nations, of the Tower of Babel. I'm not going to make a silly conclusion that because the Tower of Babel was sin, that therefore creating nations is somehow sin, and that there's a serious problem with nations as a whole. That's not what, it, that's not what his point is. God created nations to help solve this problem of evil, because apparently um, when everyone can speak the same language, sin runs rampant. But when there is a cultural barrier to overcome, I want to propose this possibility to you, that it is harder for sin to cross cultural boundaries than it is for righteousness. Righteousness is promoted by, by love. Love is the foundation of righteousness. Love seeks to help others no matter the obstacle. Sin doesn't do that. I think a very simple solution to curb evil in God's world in view of the Tower of Babel was to create nations, cultural barriers that would keep evil from propagating so quickly and for righteousness to advance quicker. Now, you can study that for yourself to see if you think that's true or not. But I want to tell you this. The Greek word for ethnos, or the plural is ethnoi, means people groups. It is generally um, categorized by their culture. So people groups are cultural groups. And consequently, God created people, and as they spread throughout the earth, the genomes became very uh, limited and as a result, you have more people in this particular group with lighter skin, more people with darker skin, uh, different facial features, height difference even. And God created this and put all of this variety of DNA in Adam. God is the one who created this this panorama of beauty that we see in the world. And I hope that's the way you see it. It is beautiful. That is the way God sees it. I hope that's the way we see it. Cultural differences are beautiful as long as those cultural differences are redeemed in Christ. Some aspects of culture are not. Okay, some aspects are not, and they must be redeemed. But the truth is God created difference in how we look and how we speak. He allowed differences in languages, and it is beautiful. Can you step back and enjoy God's creation in all of its differences and say, amen, that Pastor Mike does not look like his wife or vice versa, right? Well, I should, it's vice versa. That's the way I meant to say it. That she doesn't look like me. Amen. The truth is that God created us with such variety because that is the nature of his goodness and who he is. God is love. And so 
when we start discussing these issues, let's realize, you know, Ken Ham has a book out called One Race, One Blood that speaks to this issue. He would go so far as to say there aren't many races, there is only one race. I would say amen to that. However, it's a little bit more complex. And when we talk about race, we are talking about different skin colors. But the truth is, there is only one race of humanity. And if we are all one race, in that definition of race, we are God's creation. No one better than the other, all different. And as I told the children, because each of us in our uniqueness and being special have a unique purpose. With design, there is always destiny, okay? When God creates something a certain way, he does so for a purpose. You are unique, and praise God, you are different than me because you have a different call and usage in God's kingdom on this earth than I do. Generally, though, it is to build his kingdom, but you're going to do it different. Can you appreciate that diversity? In the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about different spiritual gifts. It's variety. God doesn't do things the same way over and over. How boring is that? I might like it because that's kind of me. My wife hates it. She wants all different kinds of colors. And I'm thinking, well, can we kind of just like two colors that just two? And she said, two, how boring. Yeah, she's different than me. And so you go into our home and you are going to see more than two colors in our home. Trust me. But that's variety. God is beautiful. God is creative. My wife is beautiful. My wife loves beauty, and she loves creativity and values it even more than I. She's got a better eye on this. God has an even better eye on it than my wife, and he created us differently. One race, one blood, his creation in this beautiful cornucopia of colors and differences that he loves. Some in the church, however, still wrestle with this. Can you turn with me? And I'm going to conclude with this passage here in Revelation 21. It really speaks strongly to this issue. I want you to imagine heaven. Now, not so much heaven where it is right now in the throne, what we would call the throne room of God, but I want you to imagine heaven on earth. In Revelation 21, John has a vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God to the new earth. And as he looks at it, it is being described, and that city is you and me. Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And what does he spend verse after verse after verse doing, describing? The city, in a metaphorical sense, that's you and me. It is in every way perfect, though, as you look at its dimensions and the beautiful uh, stones, gems that build it, the foundations, the gates of pure pearl. It is beautiful. And it's symmetrical. I love that part. It's symmetrical. It's organized. But... 
here's a verse that he comes to. Now, he kind of steps a bit out of the metaphor and he looks inside because he wants to get really specific here in his description. And he, look with me in verse 26. Very simply, he says, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Think about that for a moment. What is the glory and the honor of the nations? Is that something that you should kind of look down upon? That you, could, you should kind of just, uh, it's not a big deal. You know, <laughs> what is the glory and the honor of the nations? It is something about the nations that when you and I step back, we say it is glorious. We say it, 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 it has honor or honor. It, 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 it catches you in this awe. As, as you view it, and so John is looking at this, and this is his description. God brings the nations, the ethnoi, the people groups with all different aspects of their culture into the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God on earth now. It's no longer in heaven, it's on earth. And he speaks about their glory and their honor. God has ordained all of these different people groups with different skin colors and facial features and height and, and gender, and he, he created them very uniquely, beautiful, and he created them, and he steps back and he says, this is glorious, this is honorable. And all of that, when you look at a painting and you're just awestruck with how he uses light and the colors and there's a lot about art that I don't understand that many of you get, and I just don't, but it's, it's beautiful, and it's awe-inspiring. And we would say, that picture is beautiful. But in saying that picture is beautiful, who are you really honoring? You're honoring the artist. And so it all comes back. The glory and the honor in the nations all points to this glorious God that created us uniquely with purpose. In our day, we are failing to get this. And we are so quick to judge according to skin color. And some have invited us with good hearts, including, including some of the civil rights leaders in the 60s. You just need to be colorblind. And I would say, I get that. Because what you really mean is that I've got to see beyond the color of your skin and love you all the same. But can I say this, that this passage teaches me to not be colorblind, but to actually focus on the color of the skin and see it all as beautiful and glorious. To be able to rejoice and glory in what God has created. And in this glory, we're going to see differences of skin color and body features. We're going to see differences in language. We're going to see differences in these cultures, in the food that they prepare. And so even though Lizzie is saying, I'm just not used to this food, it just seems so weird to me, guess what? When they come to our culture, they feel the same way. But it is the variety, and it's beautiful. I love tasting the foods of different countries. I love it. Maybe it's because I just love food, in which case I think God loves food. Can I say that? 
God created this variety, and I love it. There's hundreds of thousands of differences. I love it all. The spices, anyway, that's another sermon. (laughs) God created music in different generations, in different cultures throughout those generations to be different. Can you listen to music you're not used to and try to learn to appreciate it? I love that. The instruments are different. Church, this is part of the glory and the honor that these nations, these different people groups will bring into heaven. So if you don't like it now, you better learn to get used to it because you're going to live with it for all of eternity. And you're going to listen to the different music and and taste the different foods and and interact with people who are vastly different than you with different life experiences. I want to sit down and I want to listen to their life stories. I love this. And to realize that when you are glorying in the differences, you are glorying in the God that created those differences. This is something to rejoice in. This is something to celebrate. Now, having said all of that, I want to close on a very somber note. I'm going to introduce a few statistics, and in no way do I want to use this set of statistics to derail the conversation, to in any way divert it. So listen to me, please, as I read these last set of statistics. I just want us to deeply understand and I hope appreciate what I'm sharing with you this morning, but let me bring a somber note. In 2019, in the US, there were 10 unarmed black people who died at the hands of policemen, unable to defend themselves. In 2019, in the US, there were over 300,000 unarmed black people who died at the hands of abortion doctors. 300,000. If you are black, to put this in perspective, you are 30,000 times more endangered in the womb than in the street. It is an absolute injustice, hear me now, it is an absolute injustice that 10 black men and women unarmed were killed last year. This is something, there is something that must be done about this. But it is a grief beyond description, beyond comparison, that more than 300,000 black boys and girls were murdered last year in the womb. Something absolutely must be done about this. Apparently, for some, some black lives don't matter. I want you to think about that. This issue is important. There are so many issues on the heart of God that we need to listen to and turn to his word for answers. May we pray that God would bring revival, the gospel, to this nation and rescue it. Father, 
I ask you, Lord, that you would impart grace to us. There is something so broken in us as a people. And for some of us, we can't even see the racism. God, change that. And where that racism is in me, God, change that. Give me an ear to hear and eyes to see clearly and not become so defensive in, 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 in a discussion about this that we derail it in our arrogance on either side. And I ask you, Father, that you would please, in all of this, show us Jesus. Show us what he came to this earth for to change that desperately wicked heart that apart from the gospel is empty and will remain broken. God, please change the heart of America. In Jesus' name, amen.